With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma, and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at GrifflesPlasma.com. Ian, it's Kurashigi, uh, right? Kurashigi. Hey, we are live. Welcome to episode 47 of the Team House. We are here tonight with Ian Kurashige. He is a former 1st Ranger Battalion combat medic, uh, serves overseas. He has also done a bunch of humanitarian work abroad uh, over in Nepal, and we'll talk to him about that as well. And today he works in public health policy. So we're also going to talk to him about that and about, uh, you know, as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there's a whole lot of things we're going to get into tonight, I think. And uh, this is also the historic moment where all three Ranger Battalions are finally represented on the team house. Uh, Dave, you can see him, uh, you know, we got these Brady Bunch squares going. You know, co-host over there, Dave Park. Dave was a second Ranger Battalion guy back in the day when Rangers still had Black Berets. What, what years were you in, in second Ranger Battalion, Dave? Uh, 97, 2000. I left in 2000. Okay. I, I was in 375, third Ranger Battalion, from 2003 to 2006. And then, Ian, you were in first Ranger Battalion from what years? Uh, 2010 to 2014. So there you go. Um, we were all in, you know, the, even the time frames don't quite overlap. So we each have a variety of somewhat different experiences, different times, different battalions. So it's going to be an interesting conversation. Um, but Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. I'm really happy to have you on. Um, and I think that, you know, you have a really unique experience, a unique perspective that you're going to be able to share with us. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on, and it's uh, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, I live in I live in Brooklyn, so there's there's not a lot of uh, uh, former uh, battalion guys around here, but it's it's good to it's, it's good to chat with uh, 
about the old days. So there, there might be more than you think, though, yeah. and uh, I might I might have to introduce you to some people, uh, you know, later on. There, there there is a there is a if not a platoon sized element, there is a sizable amount of of ex rangers that are hanging out in New York City. Okay. Um, yeah, Jack and I actually met at a ranger meetup. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Uh, so, Ian, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you find yourself into Ranger Battalion? Like, are, are, did you grow up in Brooklyn? Um, you know, how did, how did all this come about? Did you fall in with the wrong kids in high school and a federal judge told you it's the army or jail? I mean, how, how did that happen? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very much like, like complete opposite. Um, so, like, I say this, I say this not as a, not as a, point of boasting but we always say that there's smart rangers and strong rangers and i was very much like the smart ranger because i was not a strong ranger so like i had to i had to uh be the other kind of guy and the so i grew up in san diego uh my dad was in the military but he was in the military he was drafted during vietnam uh and did did like this technician role and was in the army during the um you know uh, mid 70s when it was a really bad time like he was telling he would tell me stories about gang activity in the barracks and uh, officers needing MP escorts to go and do inspections and just like just like because there's the, these barracks were basically they were like active like gangs just controlling yep. uh, large sections of installations and so when I said I I was thinking about the military um, after you know I had see like i woke up like i'm sure all, you know not all of us are kind of saw 9 11 happen and i was like this is a world-changing event i this this is going to affect the the course of our country and the course of our lives and i i wanted to make sure that i was contributing uh in a way that i felt was positive and so i was like i'm gonna go join the army and my dad was like fuck you um, because he was like, I mean, he, he, he was like, this is, that's absolutely not what you want to do. You, at the very least, you want to go in as an officer. And I was like, go to college first. So I was like, okay, I'll go to college first. So I went to, so I actually uh, graduated high school, went to college, was in ROTC uh, and got closer and closer to graduating. I was like, I don't think I want to be an army officer. I do not want to make a career about this. And I had the benefit that only like just starting at my generation had where we could actually go on these forums and hear guys who'd served like from earlier generations, like, like Dave, talk about their experiences and talk about what the pros and cons were of, of like, like, you know, should I, should I do an 18 x-ray contract and, and go, try and go straight off the street into special forces? Should I, should I go to Ranger uh, bat? And for me, I had always been juggling these two ideas where I wanted to do something in international affairs, foreign policy after, uh, especially after that moment of experiencing 9-11, and then wanting to do something in the medical field. And so thinking about my options, it just seemed like the best uh, pipeline that would get me to that kind of and 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 see if this was truly what I wanted to do would be going for that ranger contract to enlist and with the as as a medic and so that would give me 
you know, the first half of what the 18 Deltas do in the Special Forces program, uh, assuming, of course, that I, I pass uh, RIP and what, what and by the time I got there was the, the RASP program had been initiated. Uh, and that just seemed more and more appealing to me. And so I actually disenrolled from ROTC, which is a very, very intense process. Like it requires like a, uh, the one-star commander to like sign off on it. What, what, what makes it intense? Like, do they, do they kind of grill you about what you're, why you want yeah, to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at that point I had, I had actually signed on, I was getting like, I, I was pretty much committed as committed as you can be in the ROTC program uh, towards being an officer as like, this is, this is not really the path for me. This is not, this is not something that's going to uh, help that like, this is not what I want to do. And uh, this is probably not where I'm going to fit in best. And so I'm, I'm going to, I, I wanted to step away from that and say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to reorient myself. And I'm, I really want to focus on, on being able to do this special operations mission, which there's no guarantee. You just get no guarantee whatsoever that you can do if you're an officer, like even if you're a top performer as a, a, in the ROCC program, you might still end up being assigned to the transportation branch or something right, like that. Right, sure. Good because like they need good officers. Everybody, every branch needs good officers, obviously. Um, but the, you just don't have the same amount of control over your, your career, at least initially. And I knew, especially after hearing this experience from my dad about his experience in the regular army that I wanted to do the special operations thing. Like I wanted to be there with the best. And so that's what I ended up doing. And so after I graduated college, I enlisted. Um, the perk of enlisting with a four-year degree is you come in immediately as a specialist. Um, not that it really matters in battalion, but like uh, it, it, it meant that like, I was like a few years older. I, the drill sergeants, you know, they, I mean, they let me teach the CQB battle drill during basic training because like I, they, they were all arguing because they all came from different units and had different SOPs. And they're like, you know what, just make, just make the fucking, this guy over here, the ROTC cadet do it. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll do it. Uh, so it was, it was definitely like a different experience, but uh, and, uh, I had already gone to airborne school as a ROTC cadet. Okay, so, over the summer. So yeah, I did, did exactly, did a summer, uh, summer swing by through the airborne school. And again, there being on being on Fort Benning, um, uh, soon to be renamed, inshallah. Uh, well, uh, we uh, like seeing the the reverence people had towards that brown fence around right. there, down at the end of the road. Like, stay away from there. That's what yeah, because they're violent and they're dangerous. Yeah, they're violent and they're dangerous. Like, hmm. We always took that as a as a point of pride. Yeah, um, a couple things. First of all, when you uh, when Ian's talking about being a specialist, it's it's a rank or a pay grade. It's a it's a rank in the army. It's it's an enlisted four, uh, which is not nothing. I mean, it takes some people a couple of years to get there. Um, but when you show up to Ranger Battalion, unless you have unless you've been to Ranger School, it, it, it doesn't matter what rank you are. Um, the sham shield. Yeah. Um, and then the brown fence, you know, uh, near Airborne School is is what surrounded ranger you know the ranger battalion so oh, yeah oh, if, you, if you go up the hill from ranger school on your right hand side 
that you will get to where back in back in my day the ranger indoctrination program was on the right hand side and then you go a little bit past that and there's a you know encircle there's this brown fence that encircles third ranger battalion and regimental headquarters exactly and uh Uh, yeah that's a great that's a great uh uh clarification for, for like the listeners that aren't uh aware it's like special operations has is like being on a base inside the base. Uh-huh. Like the, it's it really is like there's it's a subculture. Signs. Yeah, it's a subculture. There's big signs everywhere that say "fuck off, lethal force will be authorized." Like I don't even I don't know who would do that. Like it's like lethal force. Is, you know, we all but the, the MPs did it just like six months ago. They were on that three seven five compound, thought they were gonna play fuck fuck games with the ranger privates, and they got balled up. This just yeah. happened, like yeah, like not even not even six months ago. Lost it, the sensitive it, item is uh, yeah no. Yeah. It might have happened in late seventies too, where there was um, an event, a disagreement between Rangers and MPs, which turned into a a big kerfuffle, Kerf, kerfuffle, kerfuffle uh, out in the second battalion, like major. But because all the all the Rangers were wearing black PTs and their uh, balaclavas, like when the MPs were brought forward to to identify the culprits, it it was tough. There's a yeah. There's some there's some pretty famous incidents. There's the whole Phoenix City thing where the boys rolled over there and they were gonna fuck up some uh, frat boys. Uh, what was the, there? There's that big shootout. Two seven five had a uh, yeah, shootout with the drug dealers. Yeah. Yes. And and, and that and got hit, which. <laughs> It was an embarrassment to all rangers involved. And, and then there's the famous 275 bank robbery. Yeah. Yes. But, anyway, I'm sorry. I hijacked the conversation. Ian, uh, pick, pick it up there, man. Yeah. yeah Actually, so, Ian, what, just out of curiosity, when you said you did, didn't want to be an officer, was it only because you didn't have like the, the, the 100% control to, to pick your direction? Or doing ROTC, was there... Did you find that being in a leadership role and more hands-off on just the straight tactical stuff was was less appealing to you than being like the operator? That's 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 a great uh, question. I'd say it's a, definitely a little bit of both. There was there was from the career aspect to really get the benefit of of being an officer and actually be able to give back benefit to the army. Like you need to do it for it's not it's not like being enlisted where you can you can learn your job really well in in about you know six months to a year and then be giving back those next you know three years or if you do a six year you know the longer it's like in order to like just think about that new second lieutenant that has to be trained up by their platoon sergeant to get get to the level where they're you know truly the platoon leader and not uh figurehead that's actually, you know, the, the platoon sergeant is operating through. It, it takes it takes a lot of time and a lot of on-the-job training. And it really suits both the individual and the army better if you do it as a career where you stay in for like I would say minimum like eight years active active duty if you if you choose the active duty route. And like seeing that that I, I wanted to, you know, I was like many young 20 somethings, I was like, no, I want to get to it. I want to do this. And I knew pretty early on, this is not, 
the final thing that I want to do with my life. I want to do this for a time. I want to make a meaningful contribution to my country and, and then uh, go on and do something else. So I was immediately thinking, if I'm going to be in this time-limited space, I want to learn a skill, uh, a set of skills. I want to be with like an elite team. And then I want to go on, go on my way and go on to do something else. Um, when I ended up, what ended up actually happening was it turned out that I, e even though I'd done a lot of research and I thought I knew what I was getting into and I felt like I would like it a lot, I actually ended up loving it. It was, I, I truly, truly loved being a ranger medic. Um, just even if it was doing like the primary sick call stuff and like helping like all these truly elite warriors uh, figure out what what was what was the matter with them and sometimes a lot of times there's basic musculoskeletal stuff but sometimes we we get like uh, a sniper who had uh, a um, metabolic issue or um, some guy who had a thyroid condition and those were but these were like conditions that would have otherwise moved them uh, into probably getting med boarded but that the military w and the army was like these guys have been highly trained and we want to retain them. And so we need, but, and we have faith in the medics of the Ranger battalions to keep these guys safe and help them continue doing their job and continue performing. And uh, so after, as, as I arrived at uh, this big scary fence and I actually had to go up to the, I just arrived on Benning and had to go knock on the airborne liaison because I actually didn't know where I was supposed to go because um, everybody else gets orders to airborne school and I just got orders to to report to RIP or RASP. And so I, I was like, I don't know where, like how to get on the compound safely without somebody hurting me. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I go over to the airborne liaison, I knock on their door. They're like about to head out for lunch. So they're like, uh, just wait here. And they like go out like three hours. Uh, they have me, I, I go to parade rest. And then like three hours later, they come back and they're like, oh yeah, you're still here. All right, uh, take your stuff. You got a POV, that's weird, okay. Take it down to the to the end of the fence. You'll see a bunch of guys smoking, joking, looking like assholes. And uh, that's, those are with shaved heads and those are the guys that uh, are in the rasp. They'll tell you where where you need to go. And so that that began my journey. Um, the, the last RIP class was starting then uh, and I was went into the hold until uh, the third RASP class. Um, the transition, I, I don't know, have you guys talked about RIP before? I, I we, feel not like maybe. Really, no. Um, that we, might we be a good we, place. We, we try to keep it on, uh, you know, kind of the focus on the on the guests, but since we are mm. kind of having this transgenerational moment here of reminiscing, but maybe Dave, you want to pick it up and start talking a little bit about what it was like when you went through, and mm. then I'll pick it up, and then we can go over to Ian and hear about RASP. Well, you guys already know what it was like when I went through. It was hard, unlike anything you guys <laughs> Um, so, um, RIP, when I went through was the Ranger indoctrination program. And, um, if you had never, if you were not an NCO and if you had never been to Ranger Battalion, you would go to, you would go to RIP. And I believe it was four weeks. I can't really remember now, but it, it was essentially a combination of, sort of a ball dragger, you know, just hammering you with these, um, 
you know, super fast rucks or long rucks. Uh, but it was also at the same time trying to teach you the, just the basics that you would need when you showed up to your, you know, your line platoon, you know, to your fire team. Um, you know, how rangers, you know, shoot, move, and communicate essentially. Um, because it's, because it's different, you know, I mean, like, I mean, I had been in the Marines and done the Marine, I wasn't an infantry, uh, but, you know, I'd been through the Marine sort of uh, combat training where they turn every Marine into an infantry soldier or into an infantry Marine. Um, but the whole, I'm up, he I'm down, you know, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. The whole movement to fire, you know, uh, or movement to contact, I mean, was so fast and was such a like a revelation like you don't it, it's it's a full-on sprint half the time um that you know it, but those are the types of things that you, you know they would they would teach you just so when you showed up you would have the bare necessity or the bare bones to to go on um and then at the end of rip is when you got your orders uh, to which battalion, you know, and they'd have little competitions like whoever could hang from the bar for the longest got to pick their orders and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, so that was what it was like when I went through. Um, we weren't, we were fed, you know, there, it wasn't like ranger school where you weren't fed. Um, but, uh, with the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And you had your weekends off, if I remember right. But yeah. So I went through RIP in, it was the summer of 2003, and uh, it was a three-week course right there on Fort Benning, you know, on the compound I was describing earlier. Uh, the first, you know, week or so, two weeks, especially. So I think the first week, there's a lot of physical events, as I recall. You do the APFT, you do your 12-mile ruck march, uh, you do all that kind of stuff. Um and then you go out to Cole Range and you're out there for like three or four days. And we did land navigation and they keep you up all night um, smoking the hell out of you. I mean, it, it was just a torture fest, a three week torture fest, essentially just smoking the ever living shit out of you. 
Um, and then the last week you do a little bit more of like instruction. So you learn a little bit of uh, combat lifesaver, giving each other IVs. Uh, we did some classroom work on marksmanship, but we never went out to the range. Uh, you do ranger history classes. And then of course, like psych exams, things oh, yeah, like that. Right. Uh, you, do, uh, you do the fast rope tower. You know, there is trying to give you a little introduction to all of this stuff. Um, but it, it primarily it's just a smoke fest. It's just a gut check to see like, hey, do, you, do you have the balls to do this? Or are you going to hang in there, you know, with everybody else? Um, it, it was, I mean, I think it was a good course. I think it weeded out the people who probably didn't need to be there. Um, but however, uh, from talking to the younger Rangers who since, since when I went through the Ranger indoctrination program has become the Ranger assessment and selection program that Ian will talk about. But I think that you guys, the younger guys, are much, much better trained yeah. in their selection program than I was. Like, you guys are getting a lot more out of it. So uh, I give credit to the Ranger Regiment for that, that they, they have upped their own standards um, mm -hmm. from when I went through. And, and I think that soldiers are showing up at their battalions uh, with, you know, with an elevated level of training and preparedness for combat. Yeah, I, that's basically... I'd say when, now I went through RAS in like one of the very first RAS classes, uh, it was uh, the third one. And oh, what year was this? 2005. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the army does a thing where fiscal year starts in October. So like the right. first two were in, in 2009 and then uh, I was the first one in, in 2010. Um, and then the, so the, the first four, it was in two phases. The first four weeks were very much like uh, like the experience that Jack was was talking about, kind of a cross between Dave and Jack's experience. Uh, first couple weeks are physical assessments, a combination of physical assessments, and then interspersed with Ranger history and all those those other um, kind of things, basically anything that they can quiz you on, uh, and then a lot of a lot of just like doing PT in the morning and or thinking that you're doing like they, they had a program where they were saying oh we're going to do a three six nine twelve mile we're going to work our way up to the 12 mile road march but that meant that the three mile road march they basically just took off on a sprint for yeah. and and like the six and the nine as as well and then like the 12 mile they're like oh well this is a formal assessment so I guess we, you know you kind of do it at your own pace whatever like a very begrudgingly um but then uh coal range was around was week three and i think there was four yeah four days uh, yeah four day, three nights four days out there and then that that last week was the uh uh the cls the ranger life save uh combat lifesaver okay uh, or rfr ranger first responder program uh you know the medical uh aspects and then a few a few other assessments and then we moved into the second phase and the second phase was everything changed. I think part of this was the RASP instructors were, were still trying to figure out how, how they should treat uh, the, the train, like the candidates at that point, because mm -hmm. you're still being evaluated, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be like the RIP style smoke so that's anymore. Yeah. Like at this point, you generally, if you made it to that point, like that, that two thirds that get cut off of, of every uh, RASP class, like 90% of that was gone at the end of phase one. And so 
at that point, they were really like, we're here to train you now. We're here to be your temporary team team leader, except honestly kind of nicer than what, what the actual battalion team leaders uh, <laughs> like. Uh, like. And maybe this is this might have changed, but they, it was like, at, at the end of the training day, it was like, okay, go whatever, go do whatever. Um, at the weekends, like, go do whatever. Because we were, the first phase, we were on lockdown, uh, give up, you know, give up your cell phones, everything, uh, shaved heads. And then they were like, start growing your hair, your, your hair out now. We don't, we don't want you coming to battalion with like big dumb army short, like hair, haircuts. We want you to, to start, start looking like operators. Uh, not quite that, but the, then there was marksmanship training for a week. It was mobility training for a week. Um, and when, with marksmanship, they did both rifle and pistol. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what other elements were involved in it. You know, uh, getting, ballistic breaching, right? Yes, the breaching. I totally forgot about the breacher course. Yeah, that was uh, that was honestly a lot of fun because uh, you know, like as a medic, I got breacher, you know, get the bre the basic breacher certification, and then like from then on, every platoon sergeant I worked with was like, like, no, don't you don't touch the explosive, get out of here, and like you go wait for somebody to blow their hand off, and then you come in. Uh, <laughs> like it's it's very much like this is like, but at that point it was everybody's hands-on everybody's getting trained everybody's uh you know getting familiarized we we got to play with like the dual tube nods and uh and like see do a night marksmanship course and start figuring out all those things that are like just living under night vision which becomes kind of the heart and soul of, of a ranger yeah. Uh, yeah. later on in, in there when you're actually going out on target you get to start doing that and uh I, I never forget we had this marksmanship instructor i wish i could remember his name but he's like men fuck with your shit like go into your rooms turn out the lights and fuck around with your shit to to like learn how how to use it and like make all the mistakes and like you know don't shine it in each other's eyes but like play around with it so that you can figure this stuff out now because you're going to figure out way much way better on your own you know in this rare opportunity that you have when you're locked down under the compound and you don't have to worry about turning it back into the armory and you can you can play with this stuff on a long-term basis and and you can uh, kind of figure out all this all this really technical stuff that's like because a ranger is at least in in the modern era has been first and foremost a night fighter and being able to develop those skills and learn how to to get around move around like trip over furniture and and, and uh get around a dark room under under nods and with in the equipment is it starts that that process that you don't even realize it's so important but at that point it was great and so but by the end of that four weeks, it, you feel really well trained. And then as a medic, you know, I, I graduated and I had a really great moment where uh, we, we did the graduation down at Freedom Hall and my dad got, who had been so nervous about the, the his army experience, got to see that this was a little bit different kind of right. army. Right, right. Like this was, you know, there's not graffiti all over the the, the barracks. Like there's not like, it's it, you know there's there's shenanigans but it's not it's not like that that setting yeah. situation and he came he actually was the one who who put my scroll on me uh it's, it's a lot easier you know during my era because we had the velcro so uh but 
you know, I got to, uh, you know, I put on, put on the tambourine and, and then uh, I was sitting, then I uh, became, uh, started working in, in sick call in, in this weird limbo period until I got to go to Sockham, uh, the, so the Special Operations Combat Medic course, which is the first half of what the 18 Delta Special Forces Medic course does. It's focused on uh, basic, uh, both the basic lifesaver uh, kind of training and the as well as more advanced uh, uh, combat trauma and um, starts to get into the, the basic like low level but high impact surgical interventions that can help to help with train uh, and on target. For, for people who don't understand sort of like for military trauma training and things like that, would, would you rate that on the level of an EMT, of a paramedic, of uh, uh, an ER nurse, an e, you know, an ER doctor, like what, where would you put that? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I've had the experience to talk with, uh, because at the time I'd only, I'd only known EMTs and paramedics. And now that I've uh, got to, once I got to work with PAs and doctors and flight paramedics, I would say there's within the realm of this battlefield trauma uh, point of care contact, you are, there's really no, no comparison um, there. You're, you're like kind of a, a flight paramedic in, in the little ways of some of their skill sets, but there's also things that, you know, only, only really a trauma surgeon would, would typically do that that you get at least uh, that you tr get trained on and, and are expected to be able to do, even though they're, that it tends to be more rare that those kind of really advanced interventions are performed, but it's and still so, part of the expectation. I, I mean, this is, this is jumping ahead a little bit. I don't, I don't, I want to talk a little bit more about the Sockham course, but as a military, you know, combat medic in, in Ranger Battalion, being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. You actually, I mean, do you have a little bit more leeway than let's say even an ER doctor to do some things that may be quote unquote experimental that maybe wouldn't um, take place stateside? Yeah, so I would say it's, it's not so much, it's experimental in one way in that we get to use interventions that are not generally available to, to paramedics or even and even physicians in the U.S. because they're not really necessary. Like a physician in the U.S. working at a major trauma center has access to a huge supply of, of uh, hopefully, um, I mean, even though right now, shout out, please go donate blood. There, there's a big shortage right now. The, they have a, they have access to a blood bank. 
uh, the only blood bank that a ranger medic has access to on target is the other rangers. And so like I'd have a little uh, quarterback uh, thing with my roster and everybody's blood types. And I knew that if somebody got, got hit, we'd, then we would initiate uh, a warm fresh whole blood transfer. And that, that was a, uh, an intervention that would just, there's no real need to use it in the US because you have access to a higher standard of care. That being said, it's not really experimental either because it's, it's been done for a really long time. It's, it, you know, it's been done on battlefields for since Vietnam at least, uh, I think even earlier. There were some other interventions like freeze-dried plasma that uh, are proved that the French use in, in a military setting and we got permission from the FDA to use. And that was one of the cool things too, is working with the Ranger medics. We had a, and USASOC, the United States Army Special Operations Command has actually a pretty special relationship with the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration to give us permission uh, knowing and to create these research protocols to evaluate experimental products that we think could be able to help Rangers. So yes, there's some, there's experimentation happening, but I want to, I want to clarify, it's not, it's not like, you know, uh, you're, you're not saying like Doc Fisher or, or any, or, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know it's not, I know it's like, not like yeah. Dr. Mengdala crazy stuff yeah. going on. But yeah, no, there's, there, there are science. techniques you're able to Yeah, yeah. no, there's no mad science, mad scientist <laughs> stuff going on. Um, uh, but there, there is definitely some, some truly experimental and cutting edge kind of uh, interventions being happening. Continuing today, I know there's, uh, there's a new uh, low titer uh, blood program that's that's being uh, utilized, where uh, basically keeping like kind of a a a kind of universal donor blood bank readily available on target, and that's that's uh, amazing. Like I, I think even out to Jack's time frame, it was basically normal saline and hextend. Like yeah. there, was, there wasn't a lot oh. of use of of other products and, and <laughs> ranger ranger medics um you know both uh there's both the positive and the negative that you know they see a more more battlefield trauma than a lot of other organizations even in special operations and have a and have a very high casualty count but also have a very very high success rate in terms of not allowing preventable deaths so yeah. And wars, I mean, if, if anything, wars are good for the, the progress of, of trauma care and and prosthetics. You know, I mean, both of those fields advance wildly after wars, um, you know, and, and during that process. And so you're you're saying that basically ranger medics, especially operations medics, and we've kind of talked about this before, are really, they're overtrained and underqualified for, for basically any job in, in in the U.S., uh, th there's no job in the U.S. that really fits their their niche. You know, they, they do way more stuff than a paramedic, um, but a lot. You know, but they're not doctors by by any by any stretch. Um, mm -hmm. or, or so um, when um, it's interesting because we were talking about this earlier. The three of us talking about. Uh, you know, you were talking about going in your room and messing with your gear. And Jack was saying that they had the gear, but they still had to do their TA-50. And the TA-50 is is what you might imagine it to be, <clears throat> which is the government issue kind of 
HRNS or whatever else. It's your, your, your load carrying equipment, your LCE. Yeah. And you, you guys, I mean, most of you probably remember that seeing it in Vietnam War movies where you have the, the OD green suspenders and the pistol belt and then all your shit on it. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I was telling the guys earlier, I was in Ranger Battalion in 2003 to 2006. And it was a time period where the Ranger Regiment was transitioning from being, uh, uh, a light infantry unit, if you will, to a yeah. counterterrorism unit. It was transitioning from being a peacetime unit to being a wartime unit. And it was just funny uh, that, you know, we had some newer modern gear that we would use in the field, but we still had this sort of vestigial aspect from the past where when you went down to the central issue facility, you would get issued all the same old gear that like had been used back in Dave's day. And like, as a private, I had to like do it all up, put all the pouches on the right way to the, as it, as it says in the SOP handbook and tie them down with 550 cord and burn the ends on my square knots. And then you just have that. And it's like in your wall locker, just sitting there. And it's like this vestigial thing from the past that uh, was done out of tradition more than anything yeah um, and when i was when i was there that's that's what we used um there were near about the time i was leaving there there were uh guys who are actually going one of the nice things about being a second battalion and being so far away from the flagpole is depending on what our chain of command was like guys can get away with certain things that they, that you wouldn't be able to get away with like at, at Benning or, or maybe a Savannah. I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know how closely they were monitored, but so that's when guys first started going to like the tactical tailor. Right. And they would get their, their WP bags or waterproof bags, which going into an old army ruck used to be a hassle because you have your ruck, you put your, your, your woolly peep bag, uh, your waterproof bag inside the ruck, and then you'd stuff all your stuff in it. Then you'd tie up the woolly peep bag, close your ruck. And so anytime you opened up your ruck, you'd have to untie your woolly peep bag and, you know, dig for your stuff. Well, they started having their woolly peep bags sewn into their rucks. And then they started um, uh, taking like the LCE and and having it uh, like cut in the middle with, with uh, like, you know, uh, clips, fast text and stuff like that. They started experimenting and nobody was like, nobody was smacking them down for it. But when I was there, they were, they were, it was just the initial where we do CQB. Like you might get, we would do it as, as an element, as a fire team or as a squad and as a platoon, but we were also still living with the, we're the best life infantry in the world thing. So our activities were very much split between going out, you know, to, uh, you know, patrol base activities, patrol base activities, exactly. Patrol, you know, and, and 30 mile road march, you know, week long, you know, suck fest that uh, were all outside. And there were quite a few, uh, I guess, old timers, they're post Vietnam Rangers who didn't think that, we should be doing airfield seizures and didn't think and airfield seizures was another big one for us and i don't know if that was still a big thing for you guys at the time um oh that was like a that was like a thing we did because we had to do it uh, that that's what felt like the that, that felt a little vestigial for yeah. uh, by the time we were getting it to it uh doing the doing the air the airfield seizure was like what this is so different from what we do 
nine, you know, nine days out of 10, why but, are but we- Before we jump into all that, yeah. uh, I, I, please finish your thoughts on, uh, on SOCOM. Oh yeah, sorry um, about that. Uh, I just, I like, I just, I just want to wrap up, you know, your thoughts on, on going through the course because I, I think, you know, we have some of the best trained medics in, in, in the world, really. Um, and, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about that experience, and you know, like, I just remember some of my friends when I was in the Q course, and they'd have like the anatomy coloring book out, and they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the I, I mean, I still have some of that stuff. It's it it, it's, it truly is. Uh, a very cerebral uh, course. I don't, I mean, I know there's other stuff um, at, at, uh, at the Special Warfare Center in school. It's also involves a lot of classroom work, but the first uh, big section is very much designed to be, in, to mirror as closely as is relevant, uh, like a first year of med school and has a really high failure rate. You know, it's something, even even at that level, you're still you're talking about every single person who shows up at this course, and it's it's one of the things I loved about it was that I got to sit in the classroom, and there was only a few other rangers. It was mainly uh, special forces guys, civil affairs guys and gals, and um, 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 the uh, Marine Recon uh, individuals, the SEALs were there. It's basically everybody that goes there except for the PJs, um, and that have their, their, their own course that they do and getting to interact at that joint environment. At, again, like I've just passed selection. Um, I'm still a, just, uh, an untabbed private, uh, in, in battalion, not even at battalion yet. And I'm being sent off to this other to this other base to train and interact with uh, these these peers who've also all passed various selections and get to have that interaction and pass and even at with all those very high quality highly motivated very smart people there's still a really high failure rate it's still I think uh, around fifty percent for the first part wow. uh, of the Sockham course and uh, or at least it was during when I went. Um, and that's a big part of that's the academic portion is is very difficult and it ends with a gross anatomy pin test that's the same as what first year med students have to do with a human cadaver out and like parts that are labeled and you have to identify each wow. individual part and it's extremely extremely difficult um, and but it's it's vital to be able to understand that underlying anatomy because when when it's again the ranger operates in the dark and being able to understand what part you're you're touching and what the underlying injuries might be and what the the trauma mechanism might have caused are all so vital and being able to think like that quickly and then relay it and begin communicating with the platoon sergeant and platoon leader so that they can start uh, calling the necessary assets to to move that individual to a higher level of care uh, is is all of kind of what we what we get paid to do, and being able to think at that level was exactly what I wanted to do, and that's when I really started falling kind of in love with the uh, with what uh, my job was as a as a special operations combat medic. Um, so getting that that level of training, and there were it's it's a like a lot of special operations courses that were international students there as well. So that was that was another cool thing. I mean, we had. We had physicians from other militaries that were taking taking this course as well. Um, 
So it was, it was, there's a lot of uh, really intense elements. There's the, uh, they, they've made it more with a tactical focus now towards the end uh, to, they've added in like uh, working, doing the trauma lanes and the, the treatment of patients under night vision uh, is, is, is something that they've incorporated now. But that was that when I went there, it was pretty, uh, it was a little bit more vanilla and that, that other kind of uh, higher level stuff. That was what I learned when I actually got to battalion. I, I was going to ask you about that. If, if they had prepped you for the environmental factors, cause most likely it was at night. I mean, it might be cold, it might be raining, uh, you know, there, there's so much going on and you know, how to tell if somebody's bleeding, if it's night, you're looking through night vision and they're wet because of the rain, you know? Yeah, there's, uh, a lot of those, those are kind of more the, tr the kind of tricks of the trade that I learned when I actually got to battalion um, using uh, non, you know, non-red lights to be able to more easily identify uh, pooling of uh, blood on a, on a patient or and how to feel for it on the uniform and under, under the equipment in order to identify those injuries rapidly and be able to treat them. Uh, but yeah, the, the Sagan course was, was just, it, it, it's every, every one of those individuals that was there from another military was trying to replicate the same kind of thing in their, in their country and hoping they were going to get the resources to do it. But it's just hard to see because the, the amount of resources that were expended on training each individual student were just unparalleled. Um, sure. I remember years ago, I talked to uh, a guy who's in the Australian Special Air Service and uh, he made this comment to me, which I think was very, very real, very honest. He's like, you know, we're never going to be as good as you guys. And it's not because Australian SAS guys are not as strong or as tough or as smart or as dedicated. It's just the United States puts more money and more emphasis behind this than any other country. Uh, I mean, Australia, for instance, the last time I checked, they don't have a special operations aviation unit. That, that, that's a huge, huge deal. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's how the guys get to where they're going. That's how they get to the objective. So if you don't have an aviation unit that can facilitate special operations, then you know, you're yeah. kind of in a tight spot there. So it, it is a question of funding and money. And as Ian points out, you know, what other country is going to spend as much money on every single special operations medic and yeah. put them through such an intensive course as, as, as what you went through? Yeah. Yeah. And there's the economy of scale too, because again, they're pooling all those, like it's pooling the SEALs, the special forces, the, yeah. the Marine Recon, the Army Rangers, and you get so many that it actually becomes, you know, it becomes a little bit more efficient to, to train all those guys. And, and we're also a much bigger country than say Austria, Slovenia, the UK. Uh, I mean, we're, yeah. <laughs> Pentagon has more money than God. So, I mean, they sneeze at a, at the F-35. Uh, so I don't think, you know, training some combat medics is, is uh, the end all be all for them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. What for, at least for the Rangers, what would happen to them if they didn't graduate that course? Would they still go back as, as line medics or would they have to, would they get booted from battalion or? There were rare exceptions where somebody had uh, done a, a branch transfer as like a reenlistment thing. So like a guy had done his time in, in battalion and was like reenlisted and was like, I want to switch over to the medic side. 
And if they didn't pass, they might send them back to battalion and they could keep doing their thing. The rest of us, if we didn't make it, we, we wouldn't even, we didn't even leave Fort Bragg. It was, it, it, we were, we were going to 82nd. 82nd. Yeah. So there, so, so there was motivation to, to study. A lot of motivation. <laughs> I, I, like that was, you know, I, I, I was, I felt like I was really well prepared going into RASP and I, I felt like I had a good chance, but at the end of the day, there's still, there's still injuries and things that can happen and, you know, you yeah. nothing guaranteed. And so I, by that point, I was like, wow, I actually made it to RASP. I do not want to fuck this up. And I was, I, <laughs> I worked my ass off to, to be able to get through that. I can honestly say that's probably, I, you know, I've gone to graduate school. I have an undergrad degree. I, I, and I, I've been to ranger school. I like, I went through RASP. I can say that that Sockham course was the hardest thing that I, I, the most challenging for me personally, because of that combination of the, the intense academic, the military environment, the physicality as well required to, to be able to, to do all these things quickly and under a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, it's, I, I can honestly say that that's, I've never been in a educational or academic setting that was that difficult. That's amazing. So Ian, you, you, you reach your goal, you patch, you mm -hmm. pass through uh, SOCOM, you get assigned to first ranger battalion, go be one of those cool guys out at Hunter Army Airfield. What's the, it like when you show the up? the best in the army. Um, I, so I show up and, uh, the battalion is overseas. So which, which as you might know is kind of a blessing because it means that your immediate team leader isn't there to, right. to start smoking the ever loving shit out of you the day that you arrived. Um, that, that being said, like we were, you know, I, I actually went there with a class that the, there were two other ranger medics who showed up with me and we were all just raring to go. We wanted to get out to our battalion. Um, and uh, they were, they were like, well, we might send you out a min rotator. And then they're like, no, nah, we're not gonna do it. Um, so ended up staying around, but ranger rendezvous was happening. So ranger rendezvous is happening. If you don't know what ranger rendezvous is, it is part, like fest it is the it's the burning man for rangers it's, yeah it's just, exactly yeah it's but with there is now there is a mission like there is a training element to it where yeah. it's one of the only times where the senior leadership actually gets to move the chess pieces around like if they were actually deploying the entire regiment at once um which is which would be an extraordinary circumstance i mean we're talking like aliens have have landed that they need all or Panama in 1989. Yeah. Well, there's it's true. There there have been there have been chances. I would say you know there there are times where all three battalions are needed, and there are times where all three battalions really just want their jump points. Right. So <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, <laughs> there's. But that being said, this is this is the the one time the senior. It's a rare event. It's it's going to be exceptional. It's the one time the senior leadership gets to do usually in their entire uh, tenure in, in command uh, because of the, they might do two, uh, get these two opportunities to practice, you know, moving all the, all, all the battalions at, at once. And so, but the rest of the time, other than bringing them all to 
uh, it's almost always at Fort Benning, having them having them do a big, big uh, regimental wide jump in a, in a coordinated manner to get all those all those rangers on target at, at around the same time. Uh, other than that, there's a lot of there's uh, there's group PT. There's you know I actually competitions. I mean, yeah, there's competitions. All, all kinds of competitions. Yeah, yeah. I ran the 10K. Oh, did you? Sure did. I, that was uh, my thing. Really? <laughs> With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That, I, didn't, I didn't even, I don't remember them having a 10K when I was there, but, but they may have and I just didn't know it. I was in the sniper competition. Actually, uh, got done shooting my lane, stood up, backed up, Bumped into you know some civilian. It's like, what the fuck's this guy doing here? Kind of do a double take, and it's uh, Robert De Niro. What? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was his nephew. So it was was somebody he was related to, or something was involved in the State Department, or and was advising on Ronan, and was aware <laughs> of the Ranger rendezvous. So invited him out. And, and he came out like when they were doing the jump and assemble exercise, you know, competition, he was like kind of just standing with the commanders. Really? Like, yeah. Somebody runs by and go, Hey, look, it's Al Pacino. And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, our, our whole sniper team got a, got a picture with him. So, oh, that's funny. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah, big deal. It's a big deal. People can go, right? I mean, if, if you're in that, if you're in, is it only to the jump? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you're in the area when they have a range rendezvous, uh, if you if you can check it out, it's worth checking out because it's it, like you say, it's Burning Man for Rangers. <laughs> Ian, do you got do you have any crazy stories from either rendezvous or like uh, what what when they did like company field games? Oh, I've got I've got the craziest story of all. So this is this is my we, so we do we do jumps at at Sockham. Um, there, which is great because we're we're maintaining proficiency. We're getting that 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 uh, that jump pay, you know, hundred fifty dollars a month. That's the, that's that's where my my beer budget's coming from, and the uh, they were we're getting to jump out of the little the little casas at mm -hmm. at uh, at Bragg, and you know it says it's those crazy jumps where like. Hey, uh, if you land on the runway, make sure you get off because the aircraft's coming back down to to land right away. I would like, you know, and it's so like casual because it's it's, you know, it's SF guys. Yeah, yeah, it's SF. It's run by the SF cadre, and they're like, <laughs> 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 yeah, 
plays static line. You, you, uh, they, can't, they just can't be bothered. And, uh, you know, it's jovial. The gut truck's out there. Who cares? It's, it's fun. This is my first jump at, like, actually at Ranger Battalion, other than the, the one we did at RASP. And uh, this, uh, I, I managed to be first in the stick somehow. So like in the second pass, so everybody goes out and then I line up. It's my first time jumping the door. I'm so stoked on it. I've, I've always wanted to jump the door. I've heard you get these great exits. And, I, and it's a ramp blast on, the, on a Casa. No, no, no. This is, uh, sorry, this is a C-130. This is at Rendezvous. So this is, that's, that's then at Sockham. That's the great, the great chill jumps. Now I'm at, now I'm in Ranger World okay. at Benning. We go out to a C-130. It's 120 degrees on the tarmac. Guys are throwing up it. Like we're all sitting on the floor of the aircraft, uh, waiting for 30 minutes to be able to take off. Guys are throwing up, uh, heat stroking out in the, in, in the aircraft. And we all just can't wait to get out, but I'm, I'm gonna get my first door jump. And I'm, I'm so just so stoked on it. I jump and I have the best exit ever. And I, I look down and I see at the Friar drop zone, they built a little mound for the DZSO to, to, to park their car on, to look, uh -huh. to look out and see if there's any injured uh, jumpers out there. And I, it's pretty high winds that day. If honestly, if there weren't, you know, congressmen in the stands and stuff like that, it probably would have been. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have really high lateral movement and uh, I pull my slip right as I'm coming in and I slide into that hill and break my hip. Oh my God. And require, uh, require a emergency surgery later that, later that day uh, to, to repair it and with uh, plates and screws. And the first the first person to run up and check me out is uh, at my my boss's boss's boss, you know, Master Sergeant Montgomery, uh, the 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 Ranger medic, the one who literally wrote wrote the book. Uh, he's like, you're one of mine, aren't you? Well, get up. And I was like, oh, I can't bear weight on my leg. This is not good. And I'm like, so I'm like in a panic because I'm thinking, oh my, I can't run off the drop zone like people are going to kill me like like some some ranger NCO is going to come and like just eat me i'm embarrassing and, them yeah i'm like i'm embarrassing i'm a, i'm ashamed to my country and my unit and like uh but anyways i get i get pulled in the to in the put in the vehicle i get a fentanyl uh, lollipop so that's pretty sweet um which which is good because then i i i knew it's, it's good that i think it's good as a medic to like have a taste of your own medicine like just to just so you know what to what the other uh, what what to, to expect when you give it to other people, but uh, I get on to uh, get on, out of surgery and have this this recovery period, and uh, thankfully you know because Rangers get such a high level quality of care, and we had like three staff physical therapists and a strength coach. By the time it came around to do our qualifications for the next deployment and the at the end of the next training cycle, uh, and the training cycle is brutally short, only six months. And normally the recovery would be like a year, but I was I was ready to go and pass the PT tests uh, within like four months. Holy shit! Yeah. So they shot you right out the door after breaking your oh, hip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. 
God, I love Ranger Battalion. Yeah, I don't give a fuck. So that's the Ranger. <laughs> that's the most Rangers Ranger story to ever Ranger. Yeah, uh, no, it is. It, I mean, that's another way that uh, Ranger Battalion really changed over the years. You know, really became more professionalized because the idea of having like, you know, a physical therapist or you know, you know, basically having resources that professional sports teams have. You know, and I know that Delta really, you know, really sort of set that standard back in the day. Um, but, you know, I mean, it used to be like, hey, here's some vitamin M, deal with it, or, or you know, you're out. And yeah. you know, there, there were no real, real resources available. Um, I, it also shows in the builds the, the actual physical build of Rangers pre 9-11 and Rangers post 9-11. Um, we were skinny. I mean, we were like all just super skinny because it was all about runs and road marches. And, you know, you didn't, I mean, few people went to the gym just because, you know, you went on these long runs or long road marches every morning and, you know, and trying to build mass just, was tough. I mean, there were guys who did it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't common. Um, but now Rangers are generally pretty jacked. Um, you know, I mean, built for the job, you know, <clears throat> everybody is built for the job. What, what was PT like for, for you, Jack, and for you, Ian, like, were you guys still doing a lot of the runs and a lot of the road marches or, or had it, had it moved to a more kind of dynamically focused, you know, well, I, I mean, like it, 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 in it, in my in my time, it, it was probably very similar to yours, Dave. That you know, we did ruck marches every Thursday. Pretty much every day, we were going on runs, and I I think that you also have to understand that it's it's the army. So, like, yes, we had a gym and we had a, we had great equipment in there, but it's still kind of a fairly small gym. It is yeah. not big enough for a battalion. Yeah. Um, so, army PT is designed around the idea that you're going to PT a platoon, a company, a battalion. And that's why so much of it is focused on like running and push-ups and pull-ups. It's like things you can do en masse. Right, um, right. It's not that sort of like focused on the individual, like we're going to Gold's Gym and you're going to do these curls and you're going to do these squats in the rack and stuff like that because you don't have that equipment for sure. every single private um, right. in the unit. Now, I, I, I'll let Ian answer, but it sounds like um, to a large extent, there's been some positive change there um, as far as strength training and things like that. So I went, I did PT in a platoon level once uh, when I was at Ranger Battalion. It, the rest of the time it was, it was like the med section was doing their own thing or, uh, or it was like my team like uh, yeah we, we usually did squad level pt but if you went to the gym yeah. it was all like senior ncos in there oh no no it was like by the time i got there it was like the crossfit bug had hit hard mm -hmm. it was all um crossfit was old by then it was like that was outdated was, uh there there was onto uh i think um mountain fitness or something like that it's basically yeah, like yeah weight uh and and generally more leg focused uh all about uh, all about building, um, like it's all about being on the squat rack, uh, clean and jerk, uh, just 
deadlifts, all about building uh, that posterior chain and getting those muscles that would like get you up and up and down talker gar and ready to ready to you know rip the head off a, a you know a guy on target or something like that like it was a that was the 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 mindset had very much shifted and I don't other other than uh, periodically like a team leader making like having you do uh, the Ranger school fitness test to make sure right. that you were, you were ready to go. Uh, if you, if a uh, slot opened up or you, the timing worked out, there was, it was basically always like, we're going to be weightlifting. We're going to be doing something. And then for, for medics, it's slightly different too, because, uh, sick call hours are during, uh, pretty close to normal PT hours. So it's like, you know, you've got like 20, 30 minutes to go work out and then you need to be in your, you know, duty uniform over in the clinic to, to take care of, uh, rangers. And then you're going to go work out like usually on your lunch break or something like that. So it was a little bit, a little bit different schedule. Did, did you guys do a lot of combat focused PT when you were in? Um, yeah, I would say it was a lot, a lot of, uh, kit kind of, uh, gear doing the, um, we'd started to do, implement that ranger fitness assessment, uh, doing like, you know, you have a, you have a portion where you're doing like sled drags and, uh, doing a rope climb. Uh, the, the RPAT. Yeah. Yeah. The RPAT. Um, and that was, that was kind of a newer, newer thing, but really, really, I would say it was like, it was like that CrossFit plus was like the core of it. There was this one point where everybody had those, uh, five finger, uh, shoes every, oh, everywhere <laughs> and like they had to ban it. Um, but like, oh, going, going to what you were saying, Jack, about not having equipment, we had two gyms in the battalion area. Wow. Uh, in, in the first battalion, uh, battalion area, like in our compound on Hunter. And it was between the, the, like, as long as not everybody was trying to save school, it was like, hey, we're all doing leg days the same day. Uh, you could, just about everybody could be doing some kind of, some kind of weightlifting thing and then shifting shifting around you know doing a little bit of mobility training agility but there was a formal program as well that they were supposed to follow started to get away from just team leaders just seeing how much they could like yeah. privates to to really like hey there's a program you should be following to get your guys as strong as as possible yeah. so that was a thing yeah. i benefited from as well no, that that's really cool to hear. I was um I was definitely one of those like old school team leaders who I would run the privates five miles every day, and they hated me for it. And, yeah. Oh hey. man, I was I was a great runner, so I would I, I was all about the all about the running. Yeah, we we also did not have the like like you said, we did not have all that like access to gym equipment for every private mm -hmm. in, the, in the regiment at that time, so it wasn't necessarily an option either. Um, yeah. but. Okay, Ian, we, 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 uh, we heard all of your boasting about how you're this badass combat medic and like you can lift 500 pounds and all this awesome stuff. Okay, cool, man. Uh, talk to us about your uh, initial deployment. Uh, walk yeah. us through how you got called up for that, where you were going, train up for it, and, and, and then shooting overseas. Real quick, let, let's, uh, I, we got a couple questions I want to get to before we start this next segment. Okay, Real okay. Um, excuse me. Alex, uh, thank you very much. In your own words, what is the job of an Army Ranger for the, for the uninitiated? What was it like being an Asian American Army Ranger in one of the few in SOF? 
That's a wow. That's a that's a great question. Um, so the Army Ranger, I would say, the the role of an Army Ranger outside of the doctrinal, there's a doctrinal term, uh, like kind of terminology about uh, being the Special Operations Raid Force, but it's to there's this there's this point where you have guys there's a cost effectiveness curve where you get these super expensive special mission unit guys that you've poured a ton of resources into and you give missions to them but like really high priority national level missions to them but you want to think about like if there's a lot of risk associated with that mission is it worth losing these like potentially losing a few of these very uh expensive high highly trained guys and then there's you know it kind of comes down from that to like the special forces guys and then rangers are like the the first the lowest barrier like the the most cost effective in the special operations world to use and utilize uh for for missions and so there's two sets of missions that they get they get either missions that just require a lot of brute force or missions that are uh, very high risk. And so because of, because of that, it is a really great place to learn how to be a medic because there's going to be a, a lot of exposure to injuries, um, blast gunshot wounds, uh, and just the standard orthopedic injuries like what I had. And Delta Force is also like, they're like the Gucci JSOC unit, you know, does all that specialized shit you were talking about. Like Rangers and Special Forces are like the long haul sustainable unit that can be out there kicking ass every day mm -hmm. um, in, in different ways, different missions. But I mean, Ranger Battalion is like the sledgehammer. Like they can do some stuff that, you know, JSOC guys just, they're, they're just not, they're not trained and equipped and it's not their mission to do that stuff. Yeah. Like you would, I mean, going out on and doing uh, these random house raid targets where one out of every 10 might have, might just be a, an entire house rigged to, to blow. Like that's not an effective use of a tier one operator. Uh, that's, that's what- They, they would probably pass on that target. Quite yeah. Frankly. Oh yeah. They almost certainly, they almost certainly would, would uh, but that's also that volume of, of, raids and missions goes goes to the rangers and the rangers get those missions um so for and that's what the rangers specialize they do it and they do it a little bit cheaper um and they do it by being focused really on those those key fundamentals around marksmanship medical care mobility and uh just like generally mastering these basics of of, of military fundamentals um so they they do it and like dave was saying earlier they do it just a little bit faster than than every a little bit faster a little bit harder than than what you might see in a normal uh uh like a, a high speed platoon from from 82nd or 173rd they also uh i mean i know when i was in i think there were more, there were more seals and more sf than there were rangers but mm -hmm. rangers are trained to work in larger units you know so you have your mm -hmm. own supporting fires you have your own external security you have your own you know your own uh, assault force where yeah, rangers can scale rangers can yeah that's that's a great point where, where special forces and seals you know they don't have they need external actors uh you know somebody else to come in and provide that for them yeah god god forbid seals ever see a belt-fed weapon or an indirect motor system There's, oh this is spinning this this is some hot takes 
Yeah, 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 I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm like four beers in, so it's coming yeah. out. It's coming yeah. out of me. Yeah. Yeah. There's no one like back. There's some white phosphorus takes. They have a belt fed weapons. They just don't understand that a belt is not a single round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Jeff. Uh, anyway. Um, and, okay. And then the second question uh, What was it like yep. being an Asian American Ranger in one of the few and soft? So, so really an interesting phenomenon is that when, at least in 1st Battalion, when I was there, um, very few. There were there were definitely uh, a few Asians out in the uh, in the line companies, but almost all the Asians were in the med section. So we had like there was like two senior medics. There was like six. So it's like it, it was you get to the point where like you'd be kind of walking across the compound, and some random first sergeant or platoon sergeant that didn't actually know you would like just kind of look at you and be like. Hey, hey, Ranger, you a medic? Yes, for sure. Like, it's, it's a fair, it's a fairly safe guess. Um, it's, it's, it is kind of strange. Being um, Asian is, is, is kind of a, a, this weird place to be in the special operations community because uh, some people will be like, oh, like some people who have like really problematic viewpoints will be like, oh, you're 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 one of the good ones, and bring you in, and then be like, you're not like all those those guys in the support company. You know which ones I'm talking about, and like, you know, really just like share, feel like comfortable sharing all that stuff with you, uh, thinking that they can use you to validate their their really kind of disgusting viewpoints about uh, about people of other races. So definitely, it was it was a an eye-opening experience uh, being being in uh, being an Asian American in a in the Ranger Battalion. Um, I I'm glad I had it though. A, a lot of ways it was surprising. I was I was surprised that a lot of you know I, I grew up in California. I was a college grad. I was like the the epitome of like a uh, a coastal liberal going into going into the army, and uh, you know I had a a lot of preconceived notions about what people from the South and the Midwest would think about me or uh, or others, and a lot of those did not bear out as well. That yeah. being said, there's always those individuals who will who, who will was not. was that was that common uh, where where people would would pick you as as an ally in their in their racism like, like that? I mean, was that a, yeah, I think they would, they, it would, it wasn't common, but like when it happened, it, it's one of those things where it's so weird, where if it happens more than once, it's like, is this a thing that happens? And yeah. it, it definitely happened like more than, more than once, more than, there's like three or four times where, where like somebody pretty, pretty senior, like platoon sergeant or higher would, would like kind of bring me in. It's like, hey, hey dog, and like, they'd, they'd feel like they had some grievance that they needed to air and like that I was an appropriate individual. You would, is, uh, you, you would get yeah. it. Yeah, that I would get it. This, this, this is one of those things that you learn in uh, in college really is that there there are like different types of racism. Like there's that, yeah, like the Ku Klux Klan type of racism we all understand. But then there's the other type of like 
you know, it's okay. You know, we're okay with you as a black person or an Asian person, as long as you're propping up the existing system as, as it is and don't want any kind of change, you know, and, that, and that's part of the conversation we're having as a country right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did, did, now, would you say what, what, what was sort of the, the, uh, what were the sort of the racial atmospherics at Battalion in general when you were there, would, would oh. you say, that, Dave, you're going, you're going in with a knife right now. You're going well, in, you're I, going I'm, in there. I'm, I'm very curious because, and, and obviously it's, you know, because I wasn't exposed to it, but the, like the, what I saw at least like at my platoon level was there was, there was definitely some guys that, that were, that were racist, not like KKK racist, but like casual racist. Mm -hmm. but, but they would openly they would openly act that out with like black rangers in a way that I, I, well, I don't know it wasn't like hostile but was like almost making fun of themselves and, and, and the situation at the same time but, but I don't know you know I, I don't know maybe that was just my perception of it you know one of the things about the rangers is that it's a much younger special operations unit. And so there's always new, like the culture change, the culture more accurately, I think reflects like young America than yeah. maybe other special operations units, right? Cause you have, you have 18, 19 year olds. I had platoon sergeants that were in their early twenties, like 22, yeah. 20, like mm -hmm. I had a 23 year old platoon sergeant at one point. Like yeah. these are like very, very young, uh, young guys. And, and so a lot of times, and now girls, um, and the, the attitudes that they brought with them for the, for the most part were, were not as kind of old school as I was maybe expecting. Um, so usually when there was an, like the, that kind of, there'd be, there'd be the jokes that like any 18, 19 year old, 20 year old might, uh, would make because they're testing, that's what 18, 19 year old and 20 year olds do. They test boundaries and, and try and then push things until, especially when they're in a military and masculine environment, they're gonna push things until they like somebody like swats them down. Yeah. But there was, for the, for the most part, I found that if, when there was a, when I had a concern that maybe uh, like somebody's NCO like evaluation report or something might might reflect somebody's internal feelings about like about their their race it was usually somebody who'd been there from from who's from a little bit older generation and really because they were more senior as well i so i think i think the culture changes a little bit faster in in ranger battalion because of that yeah um, and i found i found my my experience was again uniformly positive uh, but that for some reason, I don't know, I, I attracted the attention of, of like problematic individuals and, and found myself, uh, or individuals with problematic viewpoints and, and found myself interacting with them a little bit more yeah. than I would have preferred. It's also like, yeah. you know, so, I go to, if I go to Benning for, for training and I, you know, uh, Benning's under Sharia law and you can't buy alcohol on Sundays. So I had to drive over to Alabama um, I, there would, like, if I went to the wrong gas station, I definitely would, would encounter, you know, really like 
just blatant out outright like everything short of a hood over their head racism like you wow. should like you should not be here after after dark like get at it like fill up your tank and get out of here that kind of stuff wow but, and, and you know and in many places in in parts certain parts of georgia and and parts of the deep south that is something that i that i experienced um and i'm sure uh that was it was kind of strange to me because i think a lot of times people just didn't know what to do with me um a lot of times i was in communities where they just hadn't seen an asian person before and i i, I can't imagine I, i'd be curious what the what the perspective from like a black uh ranger would be as i'm sure their experience might be pretty significantly different from my own yeah yeah and i actually i'd be curious to know what their perspective was from you know later uh, earlier gen generations and then the later generations you know but and what you said about you know sort of the millennials or the the age of rangers is sometimes it's easy to bag on millennials but we also have to remember that millennials have been fighting the bulk of the war you know so it, while while it's easy to, to focus on a certain fragment of the, the millennial generation, uh, you know, as, you know, the social justice warriors or, or leftists or whatever. We also have to remember that they've been bearing, bearing this burden. That, that same generation ha has been, you know, for the last 20 years. They're, they're also a lot cooler, I think, overall. Um, it, as far as like, you know, the, the, the LGBT issues, the, the racial issues, like uh, that generation, they don't really give a fuck. They're like, oh, yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, we, I think we were, first battalion actually had uh, one of the first just openly was, I, I am gay. <laughs> uh, um, that must have gone over like a lead balloon. Ian. I mean, like, like all the, it, it was funny. It's like, like you, I, because you're a medic, you know, you get, I, I'm sitting in close to like, the, the head shops a lot of the times and so I'm he overhearing like what what platoon leaders and and uh, and and these uh, you know even out up in the like s3 and they're like how are we managing this and like all the line guys they don't care they don't give a shit yeah they don't yeah. give a fuck there's yeah. like because there's been guys that there's been guys that they knew like in the cough that was like yeah that guy obviously is is gay yeah like, he did just didn't say anything but we had I just thought it was funny because it was a mortarman and like mortars in, in ranger bat is like like that's like like one of the scariest places to be just as a human and uh, yeah those those guys i just I, I remember i was uh i was assigned during uh in Latin, during that first training cycle when i was kind of recovering and i couldn't like move around that well they're like hey go uh go watch the the mortars during uh during the uh air our airfield seizure uh and uh uh in what practice and just like making sure like just watching like how they would just get this shit smoked out of them in between yep. on target for fire yeah like on target like just like and i think it, they said it was like that overseas like they'd be like in in country getting like just like getting smoked while while on mission like that's just, crazy and fast roping or moving to target with those base plates oh yeah unreal unreal um we a couple more questions uh brendan yeah. thank you very much uh hi from australia as a medic in ranger battalion or later in your career what is the best medical first aid save you had uh don't want to know about the bad stories what about the good ones 
good story. You know, I have, I have two good, two really good stories. One is um, one of our dogs, our canine, our military working dogs actually was, uh, was uh, recovering from surgery and had a really bad uh, reaction uh, to some medication. And that was probably one of the most complicated uh, patient issue, like emergency, like medical situations that I've dealt with just because like we, we get basic uh, information about how to treat canine patients. But uh, that I always think about that one because I was like, this is, there, there are so many complex factors. I have to take everything I know and I have to take it to another type of creature and, and then, uh, and you know, I, I take my job seriously and all the, like in our rangers, like our, our military working dogs are our rangers with us. Like we, we take care of them, we evacuate them on target if they're injured, like we take it pretty seriously. And so that was, uh, that was a, a situation where uh, there was like finding the right dosage of the medication to manage the reaction and then keeping them hydrated, um, getting getting the, the IV stick and all that was was probably the like one of one of the more complicated things that I had to do. Um, there was a there was another incident with a so one of the things and I, I'm not sure Dak, Jack or uh, Dave we have started working um, in much more of a um, uh, FID, a foreign internal defense kind of role in certain in certain countries and aspects, where we were working with uh, local partner units, and one of the members of a local partner unit had a combination of a injury that affected the respiratory tract and a high probability that they also had tuberculosis. Oh wow! And so, um, having to treat the the respiratory injury, uh, in this case, it was a broken, uh, uh, multiple broken ribs, which is uh, known as a flail segment. It's it's a really bad situation. It looks like the the whole rib cage is kind of uh, a section of the rib cage is kind of popping in and out of their chest. And so uh, stabilizing that while uh, putting on all this like protective equipment, using like everything that I could find to, to keep myself and uh, the, the other medic that I was working with safe. I would say that was, uh, that was another uh, uh, really uh, uh, kind of complicated moment, but where it turned out well. And uh, this is like the individual fully recovered and ended up being uh, being out on target uh, uh, later in the next uh, the next year with uh, with another battalion. I ended up hearing about this this individual's recovery. So, how, how long does something like that take to heal when with a with a couple of like broken ribs like that where they've got that going on? Uh, I mean, every so every broken bone, if it can if it can be splinted, it's it's gonna be like six weeks. Something like that is gonna be. A, could be longer. It could be like a few months, and then there's you. You don't get you. You have to do cardio recovery after that too, because you're not getting the full inhalation. Your diaphragm's not moving up and down like it normally would. You have to take light breaths for an extended period of time, and then your diaphragm gets used to only taking light breaths. 
So uh, there's a lot of, there was a lot of physical therapy involved there. Unfortunately, this individual was uh, in a country where there was a lot of um, uh, NATO medical resources available to them to, to help recover. This is also an individual that worked for a very high tier local unit. Uh, so the, the equivalent of, of like a special mission unit in that country. Um, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, what is the dumbest thing you saw someone do in the military? I'm asking for funny stories. Um, the dumbest thing I saw someone do in the military is not when a individual lost their sidearm on target. It was when the strike force uh, re-infilled into a hot LZ in order to search for and retrieve the said lost sidearm. So that was, that. I, I mean, I'm just thinking about potential loss of the aircraft, the yeah. individuals, like the math just, that, that was like just an extraordinarily dumb decision that yeah. fortunately turned out fine. Uh, again, there's, there, they, the ranger, the ranger works at night and there are, night can cover up some mistakes and uh, make you pay for a lot of others. So this was a, this was a situation. That was, that's probably the dumbest thing I've, I've seen in the military. I'm sure Dave, you probably have some, some stories too. I've seen some dumb things. Uh, but <laughs> in terms of, uh, were there ever any, any like funny things like that that happened that like either in an operation that, that almost stops the flow of an operation or, or like distracts people because it's so funny or or even things but just back in battalion. Um. Oh. So right before. So the way Ranger deployments works, you get back. Uh, you spend a little bit of time getting kind of just briefly reacclimated, and then you go on a two-week block leave. The day before you get released from that two-week block leave is just chaos in the in the the company operating facilities. Our little uh, kind of these this combination warehouse locker room office that we we work out of uh, called the we call it the cop for short. Um, things get real dumb there right before we go on block leave. So probably the dumbest thing I've, I saw was uh, individuals had pulled the taser out of the arms room and were shooting it at each other. And one person got tased and fell back and split their head open and they needed, and so I, like, I had to evaluate this individual for a head injury, staple their head shot because they had a big like gash laceration on the back of their head and like continue to monitor and make sure that they were they were safe had scheduled regular check-ins over over the next few hours to make sure like that they didn't have signs of a head injury as they go out on leave and we were all kind of trying to keep this hush hush from the from the chain of command so that everybody didn't get their like leave pulled and so this this was like it was like guys, there's one day where you don't, where we just need to be, just not be dumb. And sometimes being a medic for the Rangers, it feels like you're taking care of lemmings. Like, oh. It's nice to know that with all the changes we've talked about Ranger Battalion going through, it really hasn't changed. No, no. Some things, some things never change. That's, yeah. that's true. I'm sure, I'm sure you, I'm Dave and Jack, I'm sure you guys have similar stories of some, some shenanigans. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, as 
as a hard hat diver and a, and a ranger and, and guy, I mean, guys do dumb shit. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, can't. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like how much time, how much, how much time have you got? How much time have you got for this stream? Exactly. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, uh, we, we had some like mischief nights where we went into where the legs live and fired off the fire extinguishers and got chased around by CQ and we stole the regimental commander's uh, uh, distinguished unit insignia flag off of his front porch, made off with that. Uh, we, we had like a handle of vodka. And we were all taking turns swigging off of it. Um Man, I mean, the stories just go on and on and on. I remember I got drunk at a friend's house on Fort Benning and went for a very long walk, ended up jumping over a fence, and I passed out at a gas station outside the, the front gate at Fort Benning. Yeah. And CQ I'm came in. and picked me up. I mean, I mean, I mean yeah, this, the, the ridiculous stories just go on and on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, JK, thank you. Uh, Ian, guest medic, uh, what, what year were you discharged? Uh, 2014. 2014. Uh, Hammer Nails, great show as always. Thank you very much. Uh, Brad, biggest difference in guys who went into special mission units. And I, I don't know if he is including the Rangers into that or, or not, but maybe from your experience uh, in the soft community, is there a difference between like radio soldiers, radio civilians, and guys who go into soft, and then guys who go into higher tier units after that, after like some of my rangers. And I could say the guys that, so first off, I think uh, just about everybody I knew that went on and did that was at least a squad leader um, had, and had done their squad leader time. Uh, so uh, back up really quick when when you're a ranger there's like there's like this you do your private then you do your private time then you get to go to school and then after you come to school uh when you you just try not to fuck up and then you get a team leader slot you do your team leader time and then you get other options you can go to you can go to the sniper section you can go uh to canines you can get uh, technical training in some of these other kind of cool uh, whiz bang specialties that we have now, uh, and then eventually you get to you you go on and you get a squad, um, and you get you have that time. So I the guys I knew, they were they were really they were they showed a lot of maturity often for their age. The guys that did it and were and were successful at the, the caveat, they were, they were guys that like it never it never surprised me that somebody had gone on to a special mission. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, like this this guy is like. They were somebody who, had, focused on the fundamentals, uh, like all all good rangers do, and had just totally mastered that, and then continued to master it. And then they were like, you know, I want to do like I want to I want a little bit more to master and then they they went on they were usually more thoughtful uh more more mature they they weren't the ones that you ever thought were gonna like have like necessarily like a crazy night out uh downtown or something like that uh again that was that was my experience i'm sure there's there are people like that that are sure that are, live a little bit more wild lifestyle that are that are successful but the guys that i saw 
we're doing that. I will, I will say if I had stayed in, in Ranger Battalion, um, coming, you know, coming back from school um, and getting a senior, getting that senior medic role, the next thing to look at after that is uh, for in a Ranger medic world is like, do you want to start looking at going and supporting the recce unit for a bit? Um, uh, or going to uh, the Rangers have a have their own uh, recce unit at the at the regimental level, which is a, a pretty special unit, um, and they they get some 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 pretty uh, interesting missions. And uh, so that was that was something that I thought was really appealing to me if I had been able to to stay in because um, yeah. I really I I, I love being a Ranger. Um, it, it was. I, I'm, I think uh, if I if I could have found a way to continue doing that and uh, continue finding that new that new challenge, that that's probably what I would have would have looked to to do as well. Now, when you say going to school, uh, you mean going to Ranger School, right? Yes. And about while you were there, about how long would somebody spend either on the line or or in their whatever their base element was before they would go to Ranger School? You know, I I think for for the line infantry guys, it was usually they they needed one, they needed like two training cycles and one deployment around or so. Um, for the medics, it was it was kind of a weird thing. It was like by the time we finished Sockham and got into battalion, our contracts, if we were only four years, were pretty short. Yeah. So it was like you like you go, you do a training cycle, a deployment, and then it's either re-enlist and go to ranger school or uh, don't bother, just go through the next training cycle, deploy, and then you're, you know, have a, have a good life. And so I actually took the, took, uh, decided to take the route where I re-enlisted uh, and went to ranger school. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't know it, but I had, uh, my femur had refractured. And oh. so, I got back and just was needed a, needed multiple surgeries at that point and was just completely destroyed after the, after Ranger school. Yeah. So that was that was not a it, it ended up unfortunately being pretty much the end of, of my military career, but it also triggered uh, beginning to come to New York, my humanitarian career, uh, and now the current work I do in, in public health. So, so I, I want to get into all of that. Um, but I, I do, before we finish out the, the Ranger Battalion portion, I wanted to get into, you know, your, your, you know, jocking up to deploy and getting overseas and all of that. Um, if you, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, rolling out on that deployment. Sure. Um, so the, the, as a medic, you, you kind of do this matchmaking with, with the platoons and, uh, they, you know, sometimes they'll paramedic with a platoon, the platoon will be like, who's this guy this guy's weird we don't like this guy and we'll take him and try and put him in another platoon and put a different guy there so i got match made with this platoon in charlie company and uh it ended up being a really good uh match worked with a great platoon sergeant who was actually uh formerly worked at 275 and then uh we were out in southern afghanistan uh, in an area where uh, there was just, there were just a lot of uh, kind of, at that time, a lot of pressure plate IEDs, a lot of uh, 
like everywhere you were walking was was just there 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 were just no shortage of explosives or devices and so uh there was always this desire to have two or even three medics on target um so i got to work with with uh great uh couple of medics um out of the, the strike force and it was one of the um there was actually two two strike forces working together so we got got kind of double the training double the double the missions and double the opportunities to go out on target um so that was it, it was like kind of a kind of a dream uh first deployment if uh, because it was that was 2012 so things were were not at their not at, it was like like a not definitely not a peak deployment but it was we were right on the beginning of the fighting season uh, that happens in Afghanistan. And so we ended up being actually so successful that um, there was actually not a really good fighting season in that area because we, we successfully kind of interrupted the supply uh, in, that, in that region. So that was, uh, that was kind of cool. Also, um, the base was full of, of British and they have been doing more so much longer than we have and they're just so much better at it. They built a steakhouse on their base. It was just like, it's, oh. you know, it's, it's great. Like as a, like as a medic, I'd, I'd, I had, uh, you know, I had my own little Land Rover. So I'd, I'd pile up a bunch of the privates in and we'd go, we'd go um, touring around after we got back in the mornings and it was, it was pretty fun. It's like we do some sun tanning out in the satellite towers and things like that and, and go out on missions at night and back in time for breakfast burritos. It's, it's, there's worse, there's worse ways to be. Yeah. But yeah, lots of, a lot of, uh, mainly, you know, all night missions, um, uh, all, uh, working with, with, uh, special operations aviation or, uh, or just uh, frankly, some really, really competent uh, regular army and even National Guard aviation. Um, in National Guard aviation, actually, in in the army, uh, oftentimes gets just as much, if not more, training than regular army because they, uh, in certain parts of the country, they end up doing a lot of those rescue missions for like stranded hikers and and things like that. So sometimes they're they're really, really good at like hoists and. And these things that you know maybe regular army units might not practice quite as often so it, it's it it was really great to be able to work with these different organizations and different tiers and just be able to be out there with uh with the uh the various uh units that make up the the strike forces out there so so like this was the shit for you at this point i mean after oh, all this it. training you've been through like this this is it this is the heat yeah. Yeah, and plus it was like it was even more emotional for me because I had this major life-altering injury, and then I managed to recover and then go out and turn. I mean, I, I remember I went on the my first mission was on an, uh, it was on one of the uh, MH47s, and you know it's like the ramp is down while they're flying, and then when they come into land, they put it up because they want to they want to be able to pitch back uh, and do as they're coming in, and so the ramp comes up and, and then. And when they when they're finally touched down, then they'll lower it and land. And I just like I was so amped up. I just I, I had no idea what a ranger mission was like in real life. I just figured as soon as that ramp drop, it was gonna be like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, and like rounds will go rip through, and like everybody. It was just like I think like 
I think somebody shot off a flare and like some farmer shot a shotgun, but it was like actually at like, like at his like neighbor or something like that and not at us. It was just, it, there was like, nobody, nobody fired a shot. It was just, it was a completely successful mission. We got our target, but it was. Uh, In your which, mind, it was D-Day. But like, it, I was thinking like, it could be, you know, sure. I'm just thinking like, what if it's a mass casualty event and like, you know, thinking through all, all these scenarios and this, the, the pinnacle of my training. And that was like my first, but you know, we got jackpot on our first mission and that was, that was pretty cool too. So, and. Uh, what, what, what's it like being a, a ranger medic on target? If you could describe, I mean, I, maybe there's like some opset considerations, but I, I mean, if you could walk us through, like, as opposed to like an assaulter blowing down the door and going into the room, yeah. what's it like for you, you know, or you're trailing along with a platoon sergeant and mm -hmm. like you're on call, you know, if something happens. Yeah. So definitely not. Um, so the, so uh, especially when uh, assaulting a compound there, there'll be a breach point where, where the assault force is going to enter. Um, sometimes there's multiple, um, definitely not going to be at the breach but need to be nearby because if there's going to be injuries, that's where they're most likely to occur. And so, but the, at the same time, once once you kind of made it through that breach point, you get to transition to, uh, I'd, I'd be right on the platoon sergeant's shoulder. So I'd be, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be doing room clearing with the, with the platoon sergeant sometimes and, and like kind of, peeking in and in around and we'd, we'd be the first people in, into a couple of the rooms outside of like the main the the main target compound and so that that would be a really uh it, it was a really interesting and, and cool experience to be able to be like right there um with you know with this like ranger platoon sergeant who's been doing this for a minimum of, of like eight, nine years out, out on missions. Uh, yeah, I think it's more like five, five or six, but still like, uh, and like seeing them, seeing them work, seeing how they move and uh, kind of, cause there really is an art to, to close quarters that's, that's difficult to teach. Um, I think probably the, I mean, uh, special forces probably has the closest to a to a school that really can can teach that level of of knowledge. Uh, but the uh, the it's it's not really there's no real replacement for experience and seeing seeing somebody who's just done it in Iraq and Afghanistan and done it for year after year after year multiple times a year, um, being able to be right on their shoulder and be the second second guy in the stack was was. Uh, was very cool. At, at this point, a lot of Rangers, uh, I, I don't know what their retention was like, but a lot of Rangers had a, a lot of combat experience or, a, a, you know, at least a trip or two or whatever. How would they integrate the the people who ha who didn't have any, uh, I mean, would they treat you any differently? With and, and maybe you saw this for the line guys too, but I mean, did they trust you right there with them? Did they, uh, how did they react? How did they handhold you or what did they do um there wasn't a lot of and i don't know if this was maybe maybe that my i was fortunate to have a great team leader that squared me away so that i was when i was working with these either the platoon sergeant so medics either there there are two real positions a medic will be with either with the platoon sergeant 
or with the weapon squad leader. Um, and the, the weapon squad leader will be a little bit off so they can use those, those big, you know, belt fed weapon systems uh, to and, uh, get, them, get them set up to, to utilize them if needed. Uh, to either keep people from getting exiting the target or from to keep reinforce enemy reinforcements from coming to the target. Uh, so we would th those two kind of positions. And uh, I had a senior medic who was like, "No, you should you should be up here. You should get you should get your time in with uh, with the platoon sergeant, and I'll I'll sit back on this role because you need to you need to learn this." And they had worked with me to to make it kind of make it apparent that I was competent and I was, uh, I was uh, smart and that I could, I could learn and not be a uh, hindrance. And uh, so I, I had a great experience with, with watching, watching the work to do the initial clearance and then uh, to, to do the searching and, and doing the, uh, the tactical site exploitation where we would look for intelligence on target and even the tactical questioning that would happen on um, target, I'd be usually again behind the shoulder, like listening and seeing what they're listening, what kinds of questions they're asking, and in order to try and figure out if is this the individual that we're looking for, what other individuals might be in this compound, and and so on. That's interesting. So, Ian, I, um, maybe we'll get into like some more like deployment stories when we do the bonus segment. But I, I mean, we've already kept you quite a while, and I want to catch up on some of the other other subjects. Uh, I definitely want to touch upon. Um, you talked about how you had to be medically discharged because of your injury mm -hmm. after after Ranger School. Um, how did you get involved in doing humanitarian work then after after your military service? I mean, maybe you know, tell us about that. You know, your medical discharge as you see fit, and what how you felt about that. But then going into um, Nepal after, after that horrible earthquake killed like what, 9,000 people. Yeah, it was, uh, there was, yeah, there was actually two. And uh, I'll just say, say really quickly, uh, I, sh I should probably be wrapping up in the next, in the next 10 minutes or so, but yeah. I'll, I'll try and, I'll try and briefly get to it. But the, the really, I was, I went to, came to New York. I wanted to go to grad school. I figured that was the next step. I wanted to be doing something in healthcare. Um, so I started looking at health policy and humanitarian assistance. I figured that was a natural transition for somebody who'd been a ranger medic. And I got this great opportunity in between my first and second year of grad school to work with a humanitarian organization called NYC Medics that deployed uh, to Nepal to one of the nearby, not the most effective districts, but one of the ones right next to it. And there I was essentially working very, doing very similar stuff. I was uh, we set up a clinical site. I was doing primary care, emergency care, and then uh, because of the site we were at was in the Himalayan foothills and uh, vehicle-based evacuations were not really an option, uh, a lot of what I did was also coordinating rotary wing uh, evacs, uh, kind of assessing patients, making sure that they were, they were good and prepped for transport, sometimes riding with them as necessary uh, in, in order to make sure that they got to the next higher level of care as needed. So it was really great being able to use that skill set that uh, the U.S. Army and Special Operations Command sure. had invested in me uh, to help the, the people who have been affected by this natural disaster. And then uh, after I finished grad school, I got my degree in public health, I went on and did some, some similar work in Haiti as well after the hurricane in 2016. And there was more of a food crisis issue um, where there'd been a lot of crop destruction. And so what we were trying to think about was, was identify 
a lot of it was identifying air, uh, airfields that could accept uh, large shipments, doing airfield assessments, um, doing some helicopter uh, movements, but it's, that's a really inefficient way. So a lot of it was just kind of assessing roads and then working with a logistics cluster to, to identify just how can we keep those lines, uh, those logistical uh, chains open to these communities that have been so, de so devastated and lost you know, all their, their crops uh, and had been sometimes weeks without uh, real food. And so the, the, that it was very similar to the kind of thinking you have to have in the military about how, how do you keep a, a forward deployed unit sustained? Uh, what are the challenges there and in each and how to overcome each individual challenge between getting the supply from there here to there. So that was, uh, again, a, a great way to utilize that skill set. It's almost like they needed somebody who had that type of training in the military to do this stuff. Because, I mean, how does a civilian develop those skills except over, with years and years of experience? Yeah, and it's, you know, I sat in on these UN uh, logistics cluster meetings to, to coordinate with them. And it was amazing how just about everybody in there was former French military, former UK military, former Belgian military, like every... You know the like they made the they would always make the joke we're just the truck drivers but there there really are the the lifeblood in a humanitarian uh, setting of getting things to people when there is no like functioning market that they can buy it from. So then talk to us a little bit about how after that you you got involved in your current position working like public health policy and, and how that came about, I, I suppose, out of out of graduate school. Uh, yeah, so uh, it turns out a humanitarian lifestyle is not very sustainable. Um, <laughs> does not pay well. Uh, there's it's really hard to make rent. Uh, and I was like, I want to do something in healthcare. I would like to do something where I can utilize data analysis and some of these uh, you know, leadership skills and, and analytical skills that I've, I've developed over time. And uh, so I ended up in this healthcare consulting field uh, where most of the work I do is around analysis of uh, non-infectious diseases like cancer um, and diabetes but uh, increasingly now there's, there's some interest in infectious diseases. And of course, in the current environment, uh, vaccine preventable and infectious diseases are, are pretty much top of mind. So using, thinking about how a new medication or device or uh, medical procedure might be, might be effective in different health systems, whether that's uh, a nationalized system like the UK, or uh, a system like uh, which, which you see in China where it's kind of uh, um, a less developed nationalized system um, with a lot of uh, kind of regional difference in, in the different provinces or um, you know, a system like the US which is this, this really complicated mix match of both depending on if you're a veteran or a Native American or older or poor, there's a different health system that you're in. And so thinking about, is it effective and is it cost effective? Uh, so that's a, that's a lot of what I do now and thinking about, uh, thinking about the numbers and being a numbers guy in the bean counter is, is uh, and, and analyzing what risk there is and what the, what the benefits are of a given uh, medical intervention. 
And being at ground zero, which I mean, New York City is, you know, for the coronavirus in so many ways uh, in, in Brooklyn. And I, I haven't even kept track. I, I think I lost track around like over, you know, a, a little while ago as far as how many deaths just Brooklyn had had. Yeah. Um, what, what are your observations about how New York City has grappled with this issue? And what are some of the lessons learned? Yeah, um, that complexity of, of different systems is, is a major um, vulnerability of the U.S. health system. Uh, it's, it, it leaves a lot of places where people can fall through the cracks if they're old but not old enough to qualify for Medicare, if they're poor but not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, um, if they're a veteran but they're not totally in, into the VA system because they were, they're at that lower tier of care and they have to prove that they they have an economic need. There's so many ways that people can not get the health care that they that they might require. And especially in the, a scenario like this where days matter in terms of getting a test mm -hmm. and uh, getting diagnosed and getting treated and to and whether and getting into isolation so that you don't infect anybody else. It's it's become it's a really complicated thing and it would have been difficult and probably would have not been good no matter, it would have not been a great response no matter what. But I definitely think that from the city leadership to the state leadership to uh, at the federal level, that there's been, there were some, some missed opportunities to uh, coordinate better, to find uh, solutions to, uh, you know, leadership has to stop it, start at the top. If, if there's anything I learned in, in Ranger uh, Battalion in, in, in the regiment is that like the, the culture and, and the attitudes are come from the top. And if it's, if it's uh, attitude of kind of everybody's on their own, then that coordination that's necessary to get people to care for people in a pandemic type situation is just not gonna happen uh -huh. at the level that it needs to. And this, the, the response to, to a pandemic has to be uh, coordinated at so many levels because of that complexity of the U.S. health system. Given, I'm not asking this from a political perspective. I'm asking this from like a numbers and uh, you know a, a healthcare perspective, and the fact that you've had an, uh, this opportunity to see how other systems work and and things like that. Do you feel as though some sort of socialized medicine, or I don't even want to use the word socialized because so it's so politicized, but I, I, I the universal health care uh, is, is a beneficial policy, or policy is, is a manageable policy, is an economical policy. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think some version of that is is what we need whether or not we can get there uh politically is is a different question i think there would be a lot of benefit from moving towards something along those lines and there there are so many different versions there's employer-based systems like in japan and germany where there's still most people get their health insurance from their employer but if you lose your job or if it's a small employer there's a there's another national system that you're automatically enrolled to in there's no, there's no transition period. There's no, oh, you have to call somebody, you have to sign up, you have to get your card, you have to pay money. No, it's like the day that you you lose this care, like you can still go and get health care. You don't have, you don't have to worry about potentially getting a uh, financially catastrophic bill. Um, there's fully nationalized systems like in the UK where the 
country, the, the doctors are government employees, the clinics are government facilities. That's more like uh, kind of like what the VA uh, system works like in, in the uh, Indian Health Service looks like in the United States. And then there's also um, single uh, kind of single insurer options like in France and Canada, where there's a single, uh, basically the government acts just as the insurance provider and sets a lot of regulations. And then all the, the hospitals are still able to fulfill uh, that provision of care, however suit, however they think is most economic and suitable uh, for their population. But there's, there's still stringent standards around that. And in many ways we have each of these systems in the US, the difference is we have all of them. Right. And we have all of them and we have lots of ways where you can get lost in the cracks. Right. Uh, because and like I said, there's, that, there's those age-based cracks, there's those income-based cracks, and there's those, uh, those demographic-based cracks. Like, are you a veteran? Are you Native American? Are you, um, you know, there's, uh, are you disabled? Are you a low-income child? Uh, those are all covered groups. Um, but the to be covered is also a, a question too in the U.S. because it doesn't necessarily mean just because something's covered doesn't necessarily mean you're still not going to get a financial catastrophic bill. Right, and we we also sort of have those bureaucracy-based cracks where we're like if you look at the VA, even veterans who are eligible for care aren't getting it because of because they're fighting this vast bureaucracy a lot of times. And some ways. The way other countries get around that problem is they just say everybody's eligible and because they don't have to determine who's eligible it saves them a lot of bureaucracy yeah. um, in a lot of programs in the u.s actually when you try and the efforts that are taken to root out people who might not be eligible or who might be uh overclaiming the system actually cost more than just paying for those people really outright right right yeah, it's like some, some of the other programs also that they have for like pregnant women and so on. It's just like a cost benefit analysis. Like it, it costs us less to take care of them now than it would to to clean it up later, you know, a, after, you know, all of that has gone down. Um, but Ian, I think we have to, you know, start letting you go here. I'm going to yeah. twist your arm if I can grab you for like another like 10 minutes just to do the bonus segment. But um, thank you so much. Like this conversation has to continue and be continuous, like many of the different things we've talked about, not so much like, you know, the war stories that uh, we've maybe been sharing, but some of these other big topics, um, we're going to have to get into another time. And, and I hope that we can have you in the studio uh, at some point once we get that up and running and continue this conversation. Um, and that, before we go, I just want to remind everybody, uh, please like this video, please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And if you're interested in supporting the stream, there's a uh, link to our Patreon down in the description. And Ian, do you have anything you'd like to plug before uh, we go for the night? You know, I'll just I'll just do one brief plug, and that's like mm -hmm. I know there's some there's starting to be a little bit of controversy around mask wearing and and all that. It's the thing about masks is it's not like it's not to, I don't wear a mask to protect myself. Like the only way to protect myself is for a full respirator and a face shield. Uh, that's, that's not what it's about. It's about putting something over my face so that when I breathe or uh, cough or sneeze or, or talk or sing loudly, as I'm prone to do when I've been drinking, that uh, the, I don't expel uh, respiratory droplets all the way across the room and uh, potentially infect people. So really, 
like you know it's the importance of of a mask is to protect other people uh and it's not like it's not like a bravery thing or anything like that i mean even yeah. if it was like I, if somebody goes out on target and takes the plates out of their play carrier i'm like that's not a brave move that's dumb yeah like, you're just becoming a liability for for the other guys of their team so i i'd say that's that's my one plug i'll do a public health plug yeah <laughs> no thank you well, and it's it's just become so politicized now that some people are just they're they're taking a stand because they feel in a corner when really it's it's not about that, and and it's right. unfortunate yeah. that it's it's unfortunate that, it, that it's become about that. Yeah. You know? um, and guys, we will join you uh, again next Friday. Our guest, uh, it was going to be my friend John Stryker Mayer, who served in MACV SOG in Vietnam, he had a family emergency. So we rescheduled him for September. Mm. Um, you know, John's welcome on the show anytime. Awesome dude. Instead, we're going to have John Mullins, who ironically also MACV SOG officer at one point. Uh, he was the inspiration for the Soldier of Fortune video games, which some of us, at least one of us, one of the three of us played as a teenager. Maybe two. Uh, and he served as a security consultant all over the world after his SF career. So we'll have an interesting conversation with him next week. So thank you, Ian. Thanks, Dave. And uh, thanks, Ian. we really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for your support. Uh, please like and share thanks, the video guys. and comment down in the comment section. Thanks, Ian. <laughs>